All right, you can have a seat. And if you will, please turn back to Romans chapter 5 that Greg and Suzanne read for us. We're going to be studying the first 11 verses. And just so you kind of know where we are here in this letter, uh, moving into chapter 5, we're moving into a new section. And so just as a reminder, up to this point, Paul has really been laying a foundation of what justification by faith is. And so if you remember... Chapter 1, 1 through uh, 17 was the introduction to the letter. And then 1, 18 through 3.20 was all about our need for justification. So you may remember some really challenging, uh, kind of awkward, like sad sermons there for a while, just telling us how bad the situation is. And then 3.21 through chapter 4, Paul tells us how justification works. And so last week, Pastor Sam showed us the passage was talking about Abraham and David and showing us what it means that we are justified by faith, how that actually works out. And now as we get to chapter 5, Paul's going to get practical, and he's really going to outline the result of justification. So we know now what justification is, we know that we need it, and now he's going to talk about what this actually looks like in the life of a believer. And this is key. Because I think, unfortunately, a lot of Christians fall into this trap when it comes to justification by faith, where they begin to think that justification by faith only matters for their eternity. And it does absolutely matter for our eternity. We're going to talk about that. But there can be this trap where we think, well, it determines my destination. It makes sure I'm good in the end, but it doesn't mean anything for here and now. But Paul's going to show us that it has everything to do with here and now. When we believe truly with all of our heart, actually believe what we say we believe when we say that we're justified by faith, it will change our life. It will change how we act in the present. It will change how we feel in the present. It will change how we deal with tough circumstances. It will change everything. And so we have been justified. How does this affect our day-to-day -day life? That's what Paul is going to talk about today. And so let's work through the section we're mostly just going to go verse by verse. So if you have your Bible, it's going to be helpful just to read along with me. And so we'll start here in verse 1. Paul says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's stop there. Notice the therefore, right? We have to ask what the therefore is there for. Paul is referring back to everything that he just talked, or everything that he's talked about to this point in the letter. Everything we just talked about, the foundation that he's laid, telling us that we have been justified by faith. And he's going to say, what, okay, what does this mean for us today? Well, the first thing he gives us is that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. So what does it mean that we're justified by faith? We have peace with God. You remember back to a few sermons ago when we were talking about the results of sin, how pervasive it is. I talked about how sin, Cornelius Plantinga's definition of it, is that it is vandalism of shalom. Shalom is the Hebrew word for peace. And so in the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, actually before they sinned, they had this peace with each other, with creation, but a peace with God. But when they sinned, it was the vandalism of shalom. That peace was ruined. God is the king of the universe, but humanity began to try to be its own king. We were called to exercise dominion in his kingdom, but instead, what did we do? We built up our own kingdoms. We rebelled against the king. We no longer bent the knee to him, 
we made it all about us. And so because of that, we are now enemies of the king. Because of that, we have no longer peace with God, except what does Paul say here? Because of what Jesus did for us, we can have peace with God. If we put our trust in him, we can have peace with God. But it gets even better. Look at, the, that's the beginning of verse 2. Or the, the beginning of verse 2, it tells us this. It says, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So we have peace with God, meaning there's no more that he's our enemy. But it's not only that, we've obtained access to him. It's not just peace, it's relationship. Do you see that? I mean, here's a, here's a present-day example. Okay? We pray that Ukraine and Russia, that there is peace between those two nations. Right? We hope that sooner rather than later there will be peace, that the, the fighting will stop. And that will be an amazing thing. But it would be a whole nother step for Zelensky and Putin to then have a relationship, right? That would be a whole different step. But here's what Paul's saying here. We have peace with God, but it's not just that we're not enemies anymore. We can have a relationship with him, right? We're invited into a relationship with God. We've obtained access. Not only that, remember the Lord's Prayer, we go to him as our father, So we have gone from an enemy at war with him to now the access that a child has to their father. Where we can go to him with every care that we have, we can cast it on him. We can go to him in our failures. We can go to him with our request. Just like when my son wakes up in the middle of the night and comes into our bedroom asking for whatever it is he needs, we have that access to God now. So it's not just peace. It's an invitation to relationship. I think about it like this. Jesus has brought us into the king's palace, but not just to sign a peace treaty. He's brought us in to live there, to be in a relationship with the king of the universe, for him to be our father. And then the end of verse 2 tells us what this leads to. Paul says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So if that is true, we have hope. We have hope. That's a key theme of the passage. We have hope, even in a world that often seems hopeless, doesn't it? But we have hope. Here's the definition of hope that I'll use today. Ross Lester says this, Hope is a present holding to a future reality that cannot yet be fully seen. So we have a present holding to this future reality that we can't see it yet, but we hope and long for that day. We have hope. And notice, the hope here is a little bit different than how I typically use hope. Here's how I may use hope in a typical day. I may say, I hope the weather is nice today. I really want to go for a walk. I hope I get the Chick-fil-A before they stop serving breakfast, right? Like, I really need a chicken biscuit. I hope Tennessee makes the college football playoff, right? Like, I hope. But that's uncertain. I don't, most of those things I don't have control over, right? I just, I just hope that we win that game. I hope that the weather's good. I, I hope. But what this is, is different. This, the Greek word is actually describing a certain hope. It's not just, oh, I hope it turns out okay one day. It's a hope that is certain, a joyful and confident expectation 
that rests on the promises of God. It's a hope that rests on what he has said and on his character and the fact that he never goes back on his promise. And what's the hope we have? Well, Paul tells us that one day we will fully experience the glory of God. Right now, we are invited into a relationship with God. That's amazing. We can go to Scripture and we can read His words to us and study those and and meditate on those and just think about these words that He's given us. We can talk to Him in prayer. We can commune with Him. We can abide in Him. We just sing about that, right? We abide in Him. We're invited to do that. But haven't you felt the frustration? Even though we have a relationship with Jesus, haven't you felt the frustration that you cannot see Jesus face to face? I think I feel that every single day, right? That I can't see Jesus face to face. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians. He says, for now, we see in a mirror dimly. We're looking in a dim mirror. We, we can have a relationship with God, but we just it's dim, right? It's dim. But we look forward to this. He says, one day we will see him face to face. He says, now I know in part, then I shall fully know, even as I have been fully known. One day we will see him face to face. That's our hope. We will experience his glory to the full. And so let me ask, when I say that, how excited are you? you're a Christian, how excited are you for that day? When we sing about the fact that, you know, the the clouds will be rolled back as a scroll and we're going to stand before Jesus and say, it is well with my soul. When we look forward to that day, when you stand before Jesus, when you see his face, what does that do in you? What is that? Like, pick Picture that as best you can. I know, picture that as best you can. We're looking in the mirror dimly. Picture that when we see him face to face. What kind of emotions does that bring up in you? I can't help but think of the story, one of my favorites, in Luke chapter 7. So there's this dinner party that Jesus is at, and he's meeting with this Pharisee named Simon, and an unwelcome visitor walks in. It's a woman. What we know about her is that she's probably a prostitute. She's known to be a sinner in the town but she comes up to Jesus. And I like picturing that, like what that was like. I mean, I I picture that maybe she had a speech prepared, right? Like, I'm going to go meet Jesus, and I'm going to tell him. You know, I have all this stuff I need to tell him. We don't really know, because when she gets to Jesus, do you remember what happens? She looks at him in the face. She sees his eyes. She sees his hair. She sees his dirty feet. She looks at him, and what happens? She loses it. She's weeping, right? She's weeping. So much so that she actually cleans off his feet, and she's weeping all over them, right? She can't control it. She sees Jesus, and she just can't help but weep. And so what I'm I'm not saying that to be a Christian, you have to be emotional. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not really an emotional guy. But if if the thought of seeing Jesus doesn't stir something up in you, I'd ask why, right? Why not? (laughs) That's our hope, isn't it? That's our hope that one day we will see him face to face. We will no longer look in a mirror dimly. If that's true, how can we not be filled with hope? 
So that is our hope. Before we move on, notice when we're talking about hope, notice what Paul has done in these first two verses. Because of what Jesus did, because we are justified by faith, notice that it covers everything. It covers our past sins. They're forgiven. We have peace with God. We're no longer his enemies. But not only that, there's grace sufficient for today. We can have a relationship with him on a day-in and day-out basis. And then our future is secure. We have eternal hope. We look forward to the day that we will stand before him and see his face. And believe it or not, there's more. Verses 3 and 4. Paul says this. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So we rejoice in our suffering because of the hope we have. What does that mean? Let me tell you what it doesn't mean, first of all, because I think this is often misunderstood by Christians. What it doesn't mean to rejoice in our suffering. First of all, it doesn't mean that Christians are Stoics. Stoics grit their teeth and just get through whatever comes. I remember I have this memory of being in high school and being at a football practice, and my friend's dad was picking us up that day, and he must have been going through some hard stuff. And I remember he picked us up, and he said, boys, I got some advice for you. I got some advice for you. Never get too high and never get too low. Whatever comes, just grin and bear it. There will be good days and bad days. Just know that. And I remember I kind of internalized it. Okay, is that okay? good. Just grin and bear it. Just grin and bear it. I really adopted that for, for just how I live my life. You know, you can be quoted uh, Elsa from Frozen. Conceal, don't feel, don't let them know, right? That's it. That's what a lot of Christians think rejoicing in suffering means. Just conceal, don't feel, don't let them know. Just grit your teeth and bear it. But what I've come to find out really over the last three years is that this couldn't be farther from the truth of how Jesus lives his life. You know that? It couldn't be farther from the truth of how Jesus lives his life. John chapter 11, the death of Lazarus. You probably know the story, right? Lazarus, a close friend of Jesus, has died. And Jesus comes, right? He, he delays a little while. He comes a little bit late. He comes four days later. But he knows exactly what he's going to do. He's going to raise him in just a few minutes. But do you remember what he does when he's face-to-face with Lazarus' sisters? First of all, Mary comes out, and she begins to weep. And what does Jesus do? He weeps with her, which is crazy if you think about it. Like, he knows, not only, not only is there this future hope, that's what Martha's going to say, right? Martha comes in and goes, I know there's this future hope. Not only is there that of the resurrection to come, but there's hope in like five minutes, he can say, Mary, it's, it's going to be okay. Like, I'm Jesus. I can do it. I can raise him. It's fine. Don't cry. But instead, what does he do? He weeps with the one who is weeping. He doesn't scold her for feeling emotions. He doesn't scold her for crying when she loses her brother. He weeps with her. He, he, he feels it too. He feels for her. He feels for his friend who he's lost. He begins to weep with her. But that's not all he does. This is, this is, I love this so much. Eventually, he gets to the tomb, and he's standing there, again, knowing exactly what he's about to do. And it says this twice. 
The way it's translated in our Bible is it says that he was deeply moved. And that, that seems nice enough, right? Like, oh, he feels bad, right? He's standing there. You can picture this scene, right? He's standing at this tomb. Mary's weeping. Martha's, she's strong, right? She's probably not weeping. But there's other people there. They're all weeping. It's this crazy scene. And Jesus stands and he's deeply moved. I love this. The Greek, where that word that's translated deeply moved, other places that's used, it's used to describe a war horse going into battle. Can you picture that? Two armies about to fight each other, and there's a horse that's about to charge in, and he's just, they got that thing all riled up, right? And he's looking ahead at his enemy, and he's so mad he's snorting. Have you ever been that mad? So mad you snort, where it's just like, I hate that, right? Like, I, I hate this. I can't stand this. That's the image. So Jesus is standing at the tomb, and he's like a war horse, angry. You see that image? Jesus cares, right? He's standing there at this tomb, and he's saying, I hate sin. I hate death. I hate what it's doing to the world, and I'm going to put it into it. And he does, right? He calls Lazarus out, first of all, and then shortly after, he goes to die himself so that one day death will be no more. Right? Do you see my point? Jesus rejoiced in his suffering. Okay, I don't think anyone's in here going to say, Jesus didn't rejoice in his suffering. No, Jesus rejoiced in his suffering, but that didn't mean he was a stoic. Actually, because his attention wasn't all on himself, he felt the pain and suffering of the world and other people even more. So rejoicing in your suffering is not an invitation to just grin and bear it. Too many Christians think rejoice in suffering means you cannot grieve or cry or lament. If you do, you're not trusting God, but that is a complete lie. We see it in Jesus. We see it in Job. His response to suffering was to scream and cry and tear his clothes. And a lot of Christians would look at Job and say, he just doesn't trust enough. He doesn't get it. He doesn't know who God is. And yet, here's what we're told. In all that, he did not sin. He did not sin. So that's okay. <laughs> if you are suffering right now, if you are walking in and you are suffering, it's okay to grieve. Our Bible has a whole book called Lamentations. It's okay to lament, right? We live in a sinful world. This is not the way that it's supposed to be. But we rejoice in our suffering, and here's what that means. In our suffering, we look through and see the hope. We suffer, but we're also able to rejoice because we never lose hope. No matter how much we're suffering, no matter how much we can't see it, the hope is always there. There's a story, I, I've told this before, I love it, I think about it often. The story of a woman named Florence Chadwick, maybe you've heard this. In 1952, Florence attempted to swim 26 miles of the Pacific Ocean between Catalina Island and the coast, in the California coastline. That's Florence right there. And on the day of her swim, she started the swim, and this very heavy fog set in in the Pacific. It was so bad that she could not see anything, 
including the boat. So there were boats surrounding her, looking out for sharks and things like that, just there if she needed help. She couldn't even see the boats. They were a couple feet from her, and she couldn't see anything. And she's trying to swim 26 miles in the Pacific Ocean. So she actually swims for 15 hours in the fog, not being able to see anything. And after 15 hours, she looks up to her mom who's in the boat, and she says, Mom, I'm done. I can't do it anymore. And her mom says, baby, like you can, I, I've seen you do it. I know you can do it. Keep going, right? Just keep swimming, I'm sure is what she said, right? Like before Nemo ever came out. So just keep swimming. And then she swam another hour. And finally, she said, I'm done. My arms don't work. My legs don't work. I have no will to do this. Get me in the boat. She gets pulled up in the boat, and she realizes she was one mile from shore. She had swam 25 miles and then got pulled into the boat. Some reporters ask her after. They say, you know, what happened? What, what happened out there? And here was a response. All I could see was fog. If I just could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Well, two months later, she goes out. She does it again. She starts to swim, and the same thing happens. Fog everywhere. Can't see a thing. But she finishes easy. Easy. No problem. I mean, it was painful, right? Like, easy as, as for a 26-mile swim. But she finishes. And afterwards, she does a press conference, and they say, what was different? Change your diet, change your training. Like, what was different? Here was her answer. I just kept thinking about the shore. I just kept thinking about the shore. So what does it mean to rejoice in suffering? The truth is, the Christian life often feels like swimming 26 miles in the fog, doesn't it? You don't know where you're going. It hurts. Sometimes you don't even know why you're doing it. But we keep going because even though we can't see the shore, we can picture it. We can think about it. We know the hope that is to come, that one day we will spend eternity with Jesus. And there will be no more suffering, no more crying, no more pain anymore. And so we rejoice in our suffering. Not because the suffering isn't happening, not because it doesn't hurt, but because we have a great hope. We have a great hope. And let me point out, this is such an opportunity for the Christian to stand out from the rest of the world, isn't it? This is, such an, this is an amazing apologetic, especially in a time like ours that can often feel so hopeless. This is a chance for us to stand out because everyone must deal with suffering. Right? There's the old thing that Jesus says, be the one that builds his house on the rock because when the rain comes, you won't get washed away. The key there is even if you build your house on Jesus, the rain is still going to come. Right? It's still going to come. It comes for us, and it comes for non-Christians. We all have to have a plan to deal with it. Some take the stoic route, grit your teeth and bear it. Christians should rejoice in their suffering, never forgetting what lies ahead. But for many others, here's what I've seen. For many others, they don't have a true hope. What they have instead is an empty optimism. If you ask them what their hope is, the answer is just everything's going to work out okay right? Everything's going to work out okay. There's no sure foundation for it, but everything is going to work out okay. 
heard a good example of this this week, and this will give you a little picture of how fun it is to be married to me. Um, so most of the time, me and Allie, when we're listening to music, our conversation goes like this. We'll listen to a song. It's a new song we haven't heard before, and Allie says, I love this song, to which I respond, yeah, but the theology is horrible. <laughs> it doesn't even have to be a worship song. Like It's Justin Bieber. It's, you know, Knox is watching Coco Melon. The theology is horrible, right? And we had this the other day. She was just, you know, she lit her uh, or lit my pumpkin candle, let's be honest. She lit my pumpkin candle. She's cleaning. She, you know, says whatever we have, Alexa. Alexa, play fall music. And this song comes on. And it was beautiful. It was catchy. And she said, I love this. And I said, yeah, but the theology is horrible. And here's why. I was right. Because here's a line. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a beautiful Beautiful song, it really is. Zach Bryan, burn, burn, burn. I've been listening to it this week, like, this is so good. But here's the, here's the line that caught my attention. He says, I know I'm bound to die one day, so when I reach those golden gates, I pray to say I did the best I can. Sit with my mother and the dearly departed. Send a prayer down to the brokenhearted. Let them know it all turns out just fine. It's a sweet line. Right? It'd make a good Hallmark card. But is there any real hope in that? I mean, no. It, it, I mean, it's, it's ultimately wishful thinking, right? I hope that one day I will have done enough. I hope I'll have done enough. If you don't have justification by faith, if your justification is by your works that you've done enough, how can you really have hope? What if you were supposed to do one more thing? What if it was one more good deed? What if you wake up at 6.30 every morning and if you just would have woken up at 6, you would have been good enough, right? How can you know? And so Zach Bryan's hope is, I hope that I can say I did the best I can. I hope I'll be let in, right? I, I hope. And then he turns and he says, I hope I can sit with my mother and the dearly departed. Tell everyone it's going to turn out okay. Yeah, I, I hope, but, but how can he know? How can you know, Right? If there's not justification by faith, you can never really know. You can never really know it's going to be enough for your mother or the dearly departed or that it's all going to turn out okay. You can never really know. It's an empty optimism. But thankfully, since we're justified by faith, since it's not on what I do, it's what Jesus did, we have true hope, right? We don't have empty optimism. We have a true hope that we can base everything on. And it's based on God's promises. And so our future, there is hope. But not only that, as I said earlier, there is also hope for our present. Hope for our present. Because Paul looks at the suffering in this life, and he's going to tell us that God can use that too, right? It's not just grin and bear it and get to eternity. It's God using your suffering to help you to grow, God will use our suffering to change us. Suffering leads us to greater maturity. And Paul's going to show us here that suffering produces a chain reaction. You see that? See his chain reaction? He says, first of all, suffering produces endurance. Suffering produces endurance. That one's pretty intuitive, right? Think about Florence Chadwick. How did she get to where she could swim 26 miles? Suffering. <laughs> suffering. Doing it over and over and over and over again until she had the endurance to be able to do it. But let me point out, and uh, I love this. Greg, Greg actually prayed this earlier, and it's perfect. Oftentimes, I think when we think of suffering, 
our minds go to the really big things. We go to Mary and Martha losing their brother. We go to Job and everything that he had to go through, losing all his kids and all his money and everything. And we think of suffering as those big things. And that is suffering, obviously, and most of us have either experienced that or we won't be able to avoid experiencing that. Those life-altering moments of suffering, those are coming. But let me also say here that suffering also includes the everyday events of living in a sinful world. That's suffering too, isn't it? A passive-aggressive email that ruins your day. Loneliness day after day after day. Chronic pain that just won't go away no matter how many doctors you see. Those are things that add up, aren't they? It's not just in this life that we get the flash flood of suffering. Often, we get little raindrops, and they pull up and make us feel like we're drowning. We all have that, don't we? Because we all live in a sinful world. And so here's what Paul's saying. Either we can get really cynical, all that adds up, and we can get really cynical, and say, God doesn't really care about me. No one really cares about me. There's no hope. We can lose hope. Or we can lean in to the hope that we have. And in that, we grow. When we endure, we grow. Here's an example from my own life. So um, a few years ago, like a lot of people, because it was 2020, I guess a couple years ago, I was in a really challenging season. And it wasn't like a this thing made it a challenging season. It wasn't anything like that. It just felt like a thousand things that were making it a challenging season. You ever been there? It just felt like a thousand little things that were adding up that just made me anxious and depressed and just really struggling. And so what I ended up doing, and thankfully um, we had an amazing counseling center at our church. We have an amazing counseling center here, by the way, just so you know, little little commercial there. But we had a, little, we had a, uh, a counseling center there, and it was free. So for a staff member, so I was like, I'm going to take advantage of it. And so I went, and I started meeting with this biblical counselor, and he was awesome. It was, it was an amazing experience. But looking back a couple years later, I cannot remember 98% of the things that we talked about. <laughs> I can't. But he said one thing, one thing, and I'm probably even misquoting it, but it was something like this. He said one thing that totally was a paradigm shift for my life. Here's what he said. It seems your goal is always to try to avoid suffering rather than to learn, rather than learning to endure when suffering comes. Let me read that again. It seems your goal is always to try to avoid suffering rather than learning to endure when suffering comes. And he nailed it. That was my life. And that still is my life to a point. All of my prayers were filled with, God, take this away. God, fix that. God, work this out. God, please, do this. And sometimes he did. But you know what I never prayed? God, change me. Every prayer was asking God to change my circumstance. I never prayed a prayer that said, God, okay, I would like you to change this circumstance. You can say that, right? Go with your request. Absolutely. Jesus did that in the garden, didn't he? He did that in the Garden of Gethsemane. God changed this. But if you don't, change me. Change me. Because suffering produces endurance. 
We are called to endure the flash floods and the raindrops. So we endure. We stay in it. We don't run away. And if we do that, what happens? Here's what Paul says. Endurance produces character. What does this passage mean by character? Well, the, the Greek here is really describing a tested character. It's a character that's been tested, that, and it only comes through experience. Okay? So one commentator, I, I resonated with this one. One commentator used the example of a sports team who's been in the playoffs year after year. Okay? So just don't hate me, but I'm a New England Patriots fan in the NFL. Okay? And everyone rolls their eyes when I say that for a simple reason. Because they were so good for two decades, right? If you're a football fan, you know for two decades, the New England Patriots were almost always in the playoffs. And even if you're not a football fan, you can probably get this analogy. There's this thing that always tended to happen. The Patriots would always have a, a pretty good season or, you know, whatever, sometimes a great season all over, but they would make the playoffs. And every year it seemed like they came up against a team that was better than them in every way had a better regular season, had a better defense, had a better everything. Most of the time, that team was, was quarterbacked by Peyton Manning. That tended to be how it worked. It was the Indianapolis Colts coming in to play the New England Patriots. And this thing would happen. The other team would come in. They had a great regular season, but they would come in, and they'd be tight. They'd be nervous. They would make mistakes that they didn't normally make. And the Patriots just played like normal. Why? Because they'd done it year after year after year, right? They'd been in that environment year after year after year. And what it did is it created a character, a testedness that the other team didn't have. That's what Paul's describing here, a testedness. That's what suffering does to us. It creates in us a character, a testedness where we are unshakable. Here's how Dallas Willard defines character. He says, character is what we do without having to think about it. It's what we do without having to think about it. So think about Peter. Remember Peter? Peter, the night before Jesus' death, what does he do? I will never leave you. Remember this? I will never abandon you. Everyone else may, but I will never turn my back on you. And what does he do? Abandons him. Okay? What happened? From everything that we can tell, Peter meant what he said. He had really good intentions. He didn't want to leave Jesus. But his character wasn't as good as in his intentions. His character wasn't as good as his intentions. He knew what he wanted to do, but the character wasn't there yet. Which is awesome. Because you know how Peter dies, at least what history tells us? He dies as a martyr. So at that point, he didn't have the character to stand up for Jesus. But then through a life of following him through a life of communing with him, through a life of suffering, what does he ultimately do? Give his life for Jesus, right? It produces in us a character where we are unshakable. And the chain isn't complete. Paul says that character produces hope. We talked a lot about that, but we become even more sure in our hope. Because here's the thing. This is true of all of us. We all love to put our hope and other things other than what we talked about this morning, don't we? We all love to find our hope somewhere else, whether it be our job or our children or our future or whatever it may be. We all have a hope that we cling on to that's not Jesus. 
And so what suffering does is it begins to prune away those other hopes, right? It gives us a single-mindedness. It gives us a hope that is actually eternal. Suffering is like a furnace, okay? And if you put silver into a furnace, do you know what happens? The impurities rise to the top. That's what happens in our sufferings. All our other hopes come out, and God is able just to pick those things out so that we grow to look more and more like him, and our hope is on something, a a foundation that won't move. You see that? You see the chain? When we stay in it, when we stay in our suffering, when we don't run, when we continue to trust, when we rejoice in our suffering, we grow in character, and we become single-minded on the things that truly matter. And that transitions us to our last section, and I'll be, be really quick here. In verse 5, Paul anticipates a question. Okay? He anticipates a question. He anticipates that someone's going to hear all this and they're going to ask, but how can you know? <laughs> how can you know? What's the difference between your hope and Zach Bryan's hope, who just says, I hope that one day I get let in. I hope I did good enough. What is the difference? And Paul's going to give two answers. First of all, verse 5, he says the first is that There is an internal answer. He says the Holy Spirit is here to remind us of what's true. That's verse 5. It says this, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So in our suffering, with the help of the Holy Spirit, he shows us and reminds us of God's love. Have you ever been in one of the lowest moments of your life and somehow knew more than ever that God loved you? You ever experienced that? Feeling like you're in just the worst part of that 26-mile swim. But knowing, having a peace, having a, a knowing like you've never known before that God truly loves you. That's the Holy Spirit. So Paul says that, but he says there's also evidence outside. There's also evidence that's more objective that shows us the hope we have. And he points to the cross. Let me, let me read the second half of the passage, starting in verse 6. He says, well, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I'll summarize this quickly. Here's what Paul's saying. If you are in the depth of the the pit of suffering, the low point of suffering, and you start to ask yourself, does God even love me? I've been on both sides. I've been in the part where I've been in suffering and I've known more than ever that God loved me. I've also been in times where I was suffering. And I said, does he really love me? Like, like would he be putting me through this if he, if he really loved me? How do we know? How do we know he loves us? Paul's answer would be, Don't look at your circumstances. Look at the cross. He proved it there, didn't he? Without a shadow of a doubt, he proved it 
there. Because while we were his enemies, right, we did nothing to deserve it. Absolutely not. We did nothing to deserve it. While we were his enemies, he lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death that we deserved. And he proved his love without a shadow of a doubt, didn't he? He proved it. Just a little spoiler alert, but here's where Paul's going to go in chapter 8, verse 32. How do we know that we have hope? Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you see what the hope is, is, is in here? God already gave his son. If he'll give the, that thing, if he'll give everything, he's not going to start nickel and diming us now. Our hope is secure because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? That's why we can be hopeful. That's why we can rejoice in suffering. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to respond with a couple songs just singing about this hope that we have. Dear Lord, I just thank you for this passage. Just what a, what a wonderful hope this is, that you are sovereign and that even when we are at our low points in life, even when we can't understand what's happening, you have a plan. You're working for our good. Maybe that doesn't mean exactly what we want it to mean a lot of the times. What it means is that, that you're making us look more like Jesus, and we thank you for that and that our eternity is secure. Our hope isn't a flimsy hope. It's built on a sure foundation of your promises that you never break. That one day, if we are in you, we will spend eternity with you. Death will be no more. We will see you face to face. And Lord, I pray, just specifically, if there's anyone in here who hasn't put their hope in you, let them do that this morning work this morning, Lord. And I pray for those of us who are followers of you that this hope, as we, as we respond here in song and then as we leave, will be strengthened in us. That when we meet the normal challenges of life, when someone criticizes us or, or whatever it may be, hard things happen, we know that first of all, we're sinful, and you had to die for us. But we are so loved that you were happy to die for us, and we can rest in that. Lord, thank you for that hope. Thank you for that truth. Let us live as people who truly believe that we are justified by faith. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.